brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. With everyone looking to shrink their bill these days, Dunn Stores gives you new ways to save on your shop with Double Savers. First, you'll save in the aisles when you fill your basket with fantastic low prices across thousands of great products. Then, you'll save again at the till with our 5 off 25 grocery voucher. Shrink your bill with Double Savers, new from Dunn Stores. Dunn Stores, always better value. Terms and conditions apply. Voucher can be used on next in-store grocery shop of €25 or more. Mabuhay. Welcome to Lagim, a Filipino true crime podcast. My name is Christine and this is episode 11 on the Claudine Feliciano story. Before I start this episode, please make sure to follow Lagim on all social media platforms. We are on Instagram at Lagim Podcast, on Twitter at Lagim Pod, and on TikTok at Lagim Podcast. There is a Lagim Facebook page and discussion group, so make sure you look up Lagim on Facebook as well. If you prefer streaming Lagim on YouTube, then head over to YouTube and look up Lagim Podcast there as well. And now to our story. Content warning. This story contains details about sexual assault and murder, so please take care of yourself whilst listening. I have always known that venturing into true crime podcasting will expose me to even more horrible sides of humanity than I already am exposed to. I consume a lot of true crime content in my own free time, so to be doing this as a passion project as well is just, uh, well, asking for more trouble. Most of the times, I already know the case as well. They hardly phase me. I talked about how the Pepsi Paloma case left a deep impression on me, but that was mainly due to the imbalanced power dynamics that mostly victimized women experience. These women then find themselves confronting their demons, which frankly can end in either a triumphant story or, in Pepsi's case, 
a tragedy. However, there are also stories that are purely about senseless violence. And those are the stories that make me think twice about the true nature of humans. I mentioned to a friend earlier this week that what really drew me to true crime are the questions about the goodness and badness of people. Are we inherently good? Is being bad merely an aberration in some people? Or are we inherently bad? And is our compliance to law and order, for most part, a result of thousands of years of evolution that coded into our DNA an inhibitor of our wickedness by our willingness to follow social rules and the law? These are the thoughts that swirl around in my brain at 3 a.m. when I do my research for the podcast. And these thoughts were most definitely very prominent when I first heard about Claudine Feliciano. The story was suggested to me by a listener. I have not heard about her before, but the first video I saw about her signaled to me that this was not going to be an easy one. Claudine Feliciano, or Claudine Mabel Feliciano to be exact, was by all accounts a well-rounded young lady, an admirable daughter, and a kind friend. Her father would be the first one to admit that Claudine lived a rather sheltered life. She was brought to school and then picked up as well. But as she entered her post-college adult life, even her parents saw that they had to allow her to bloom on her own and be independent. The first step was to get Claudine a car. And when she did, I can only imagine the kind of newly won sense of freedom and independence that she felt the moment she was allowed to venture out on her own. So what happened to Claudine? On the 10th of March 2001, Claudine and a friend agreed that it would be a good idea to watch a movie after work. They agreed on where to go and at what time. Claudine then picked up her friend Myra around 8 p.m. on the day to go to a mall in Ayala, Alabang. When the two got to the mall, they changed their minds about the movie. They now wanted to do something else. The friends therefore settled for a sit-down and a chat in a coffee shop nearby. By 10 o'clock, another friend called Tara joined them at the coffee shop. This friend, who was the last to join the group, was also the first one to leave. After Tara left, both Claudine and Myra decided to slowly head home as well. Claudine insisted on driving Myra home, for which she was very thankful, Myra did not know at that point, however, that that would be the last time she would see her kind friend alive. Claudine's parents, with whom she still lived, started to worry later the same evening. Claudine was not one to let her parents wait past a decent hour at night and not let them know if she was running late or maybe if she was stuck somewhere. Her silence and the fact that she was not home that evening way after 10 o'clock made the couple worry. They tried calling Claudine's phone, but she was not picking up. The timeline is not clear here, but I can safely assume that Claudine's parents waited until the next day to give Claudine a chance to come home before taking any action. When the next day Claudine still had not come home, Claudine's father then decided that they should head to the nearest police station to report their missing daughter. 
At the police station, the married couple started telling a police officer, coincidentally also called Felishano, that their daughter had not come home and that despite numerous calls to her mobile phone, she had not picked up or texted them about her whereabouts. Officer Felishano had a thought at this moment. Just hours before, he and some other colleagues were called out to Paranaque City, to the San Antonio Creek specifically. Residents near the creek reported that they had seen what looked like a body in the creek. Officer Feliciano was one of the first responders on site and confirmed to his colleagues that, yes, it was a body, a half-naked body of a woman. Officer Feliciano would later say that they found the woman hogtied with no clear signs of physical injuries such as a knife wound or a gunshot wound, but that a pair of stockings or tights were tied around her neck. As they checked out the body closer, they could not find any identifying objects or documentation that would help them identify the young lady. So they officially had a Jane Doe at their hands. Officer Feliciano hated to ask the already upset Feliciano couple, but he ultimately had to. He started telling the upset couple about Jane Doe, and they were willing to have a look at her to hopefully rule out that she was indeed their daughter. Alas, upon arrival at the morgue, Mr. and Mrs. Feliciano broke down when they finally saw that Jane Doe was indeed their daughter, Claudine. The shock sat deep for obvious reasons. I think as human beings, a loss such as this one can birth so many emotions all at once. Anybody who has lost anyone will know that there is a moment where you are in denial of the truth. I can imagine this being so much stronger in parents who have lost their child. As someone once told me, no parent should have to bury their child. It is a specifically horrible type of pain that leaves such a prominent mark within the parents. But after these moments of shock and denial, the questions come. Why? How? Why her? And who? What actually happened? The police of Paranaque had the same questions. So their investigation started immediately after Claudine was identified by her parents. At this point also, the National Bureau of Investigation, or NBI, had gotten involved in the case, which was comforting to the parents who thought that maybe things will be better in the investigation if the NBI were involved. Now, the initial investigation into the perpetrators showed that there were some witnesses near the creek where Claudine was found. One witness in particular saw a group of men dump something that to him looked like a person into the San Antonio Creek. This gave the police their first lead. They are looking for a group. They were not looking for just one person. The police also started to brainstorm as to who these men were. Who was this group? Was it a group of well-to-do men from powerful and influential Filipino families who perhaps preyed upon young and vulnerable women? If that were the case, Claudine would not be the first victim. Or was this perhaps a group of drug-addicted men who got so high that they were driven to commit a crime? The Paranaque police and the NBI were finally close to an answer when two weeks after Claudine's death, they made an arrest. 
they arrested Ernesto Berry and his cousin Nieves Constancio. Berry was quick to point his finger at his own cousin, saying that Nieves was the mastermind of Claudine's murder. Berry also explained that the group comprised of five men in total. When asked why the group did what they did, Berry said that they did not really intend to hurt and kill Claudine. They just wanted her mobile phone. Betty gave up the names of the other three men, and it looked like he did not really know these men well, or at least he pretended like he didn't. He called one of them Borog and said that he did not know his full name. The other two were identified as Donardo Pagalinawan and Dani Darden. Betty also explained that the group had stolen before. Their modus operandi was to approach women when they are alone at night and on the street and steal from them, mostly money and mobile phones, really. But what did Betty say actually happened to Claudine? Let us rewind back to March 10th. According to Betty, on the 10th of March 2001 at 6 o'clock in the evening, he went to his cousin's Nevis's house. He found the two other suspects there, plus his cousin, having a drinking session. At around 7, the last member of the group arrived, and they decided to head out in a blue Tamarau FX. Betty said that the group was heading to a mall in Paranaque. When they arrived at the said mall, his cousin left the car for a few minutes and then came back. Betty was not sure what his cousin was doing after he left the car, but he didn't ask. He said that as soon as his cousin got back into the car, they drove to another mall in Alabang another district of Manila, some six kilometers away from Paranaque. Having arrived at Alabang, his cousin, who was driving the car, cut in front of a black car. Constancio, his cousin, then got out of their car, and this time Betty watched his cousin approach the driver of the black car, a young lady. It was Claudine. Now you might be wondering... Why was Claudine back at the mall in Alabang when she had just finished dropping off her friend and should just be heading home? For some reason, Claudine went back. And I'm not sure if this was something she did on a regular basis or because it is convenient for her in some way. We will never know. In other earlier reports, however, it looked like Claudine was actually headed home and merely passed the mall in Alabang. She had also called her father at least once after she dropped off her friend. Maybe Claudine merely did a pit stop at the mall in Alabang and was indeed on her way back to her parents' house. But let's go back to Nieves Constancio. According to Betty, his cousin first tried to speak to Claudine, telling her she had a flat tire. Of course, this was a ruse to make sure Claudine's guard was down. In one report, it seems that Berry said his cousin approached Claudine alone, but in other reports, it looks like Constancio was not alone and had the other suspects with him. In any way, Claudine did not understand what Constancio was saying right away, so she rolled down her window to better understand him. In those reports that said Constancio was not alone in approaching Claudine, it was further reported that one of the other suspects then reached into the car through the driver's window to snatch away the mobile phone that Claudine was carrying. But this suspect failed to take the phone. 
It was not mentioned who exactly was the one who tried to snatch the phone, by the way. Betty then said that the rest of the group then got out of the Tamarau FX and punctured a tire of Claudine's car. It looks like, from some reports at the time, Claudine did not necessarily notice this and probably tried to get away from the situation, but the men were quick to move. In one news article, it was reported that three of the men then boarded the black car and drove into Las Piñas, another district nearby. But more to that later. In a short crime show called Action TV, Betty stated that his cousin actually threatened Claudine with a knife, grabbed her out of her own car, and forced her into the blue Tamarau FX. Betty then said that his cousin and the other suspect called Danny then got into Claudine's car and drove it away from the mall, heading their little convoy of two. Now from Alabang, it looked like the convoy drove in a bit of a circle as they headed to Las Piñas and then back to Paranaque, where they started their journey. Betty said that they took Claudine to a house owned by his cousin. In some reports, it was stated that this house, this hideout, was actually in Las Piñas and not Paranaque. I actually cannot account for these maybe not so subtle differences in reporting. I generally prefer to get the story from court documents as much as I can, but in the absence of said documents, I have to rely on videos, news articles, and blogs to piece together a timeline of events. It is not uncommon to see small differences in reporting. In this story, one thing is clear despite the differences amongst contemporary reports. Claudine was abducted from Alabang and then brought to a hideout by five men. That much we know at this point. Betty admitted that when the group arrived there, the rest of the group proceeded to hurt, assault, and then rape Claudine, who was begging them to stop the whole time. Betty insisted that at this point he did not participate in the rape of Claudine, but something is telling me that this is one aspect of his statement that should be looked at again further down the line. According to Betty, he could not have been a participant in Claudine's rape since his cousin asked him specifically to leave the four of them with Claudine alone. Assuming this was the case, Betty then explained that when all four of his colleagues were done with Claudine, they killed her. Bear in mind here that police would also later find out that not only were these men under the influence of alcohol due to their drinking session earlier that evening, but Berry admitted that the group was also high on drugs. Nevertheless, things happened quickly after the group killed Claudine. The group wanted to get rid of Claudine's body immediately. You have to note here, however, that some news outlets explained that the group, owing to their level of intoxication and having consumed drugs, may not have been sure if Claudine was dead at that point at all, so dumping her body somewhere was somehow rationalized amongst the five men as a surefire way to finish the job. So, the group prepared to leave. A painful aspect of Betty's story is that the men did not even bother to cover her lower body when they threw her body inside the Black Mazda's compartment. 
I do not know why I expected any of them to be respectful after assaulting, raping, and killing Claudine, but the way her body was left half-naked somehow adds to this story another layer of horror that exacerbated the crimes that had already been committed. So the group, as I said, wanted to get rid of Claudine's body right away and decided to drive to the San Antonio Creek in Paranaque. Upon getting there, they wasted no time in dumping her lifeless body in it by tossing it off a bridge. This was most probably the moment when those witnesses I mentioned earlier saw the group do what they did at the creek. Betty did not stop his story there, however. In fact, Betty admitted that a day after they had dumped Claudine's body into the creek, they were back at their old routines and approached another young lady called Janet Bales. This time, however, the group was not successful. Janet would later testify that at 3 a.m. on the 12th of March, whilst waiting for public transportation, a black car pulled up right in front of her. Thinking the driver had just stopped there to do something completely unrelated to her, Janet did not pay much attention until one of the men inside the car alighted from it, ran towards her, and grabbed her. He wanted to force her into the car where the other men were already waiting, but Janet fought him and fought him hard. She tugged away from her would-be captor and screamed for help as loud as she could. And it paid off. Several people who were nearby rushed to help Janet and scared Betty's group away. Sadly, Janet was not able to hold on to her bag. Betty's group was able to snatch it away at the last second before they fled the scene. Janet wasted no time and headed to the nearest police station to report what just happened to her. Further investigation into Janet's case showed that one witness was able to note down the number plates of the black car that pulled up in front of her. This was a promising development in Janet's case, but at that point, the police had not made the connection between Janet's experience and what had happened to Claudine yet. They soon will be doing so, however. The witness in Janet's case told the police that the black car that pulled in front of Janet had the number plate URN855. It was at that moment the police realized that Janet's attempted abduction and robbery was most probably perpetrated by the same people who murdered Claudine. The penny finally dropped for the police when they realized that the car with the plate number URN855 was the same car that Claudine drove, the same car that was still missing from their investigation. So, the investigation was finally picking up pace at this point. A day after Janet's report to the police, and after they had made the connection with Claudine's case, a call came through to the Paranaque police station. The caller reported that a black Mazda had been abandoned at the Magallanes Center in Makati City. Makati is a financial district of Manila, and it is some 14 kilometers away from where Claudine was last seen and eventually found in Paranaque. Officers who went to Makati made sure the forensic team got the car as soon as possible for testing. In the meantime, Claudine's body was going through an autopsy. 
The medical officer confirmed that Claudine was indeed raped. It was specifically explained that two types of sperms were found in Claudine, hinting at at least two rapists. I know that Betty said all the other four men raped Claudine, and it might feel that the medical examination results negated this, but bear in mind that an absence of sperm does not necessarily negate that a rape took place. Now, as for the official cause of death, the medical officer concluded it was asphyxiation. It seems that someone from the group strangled Claudine to death, most probably with the stockings found around her neck. A report by the Philippine Star said that investigators found out that Claudine was not wearing stockings the night she died, leading them to believe that maybe there had been a sixth suspect who happened to be female. Of course, this was a report made mere days after Claudine was found, when the NBI was still gathering all sorts of information. But I think this line of inquiry did not really pan out. As you can see, in the end, the investigators just pursued the lead given by Betty. We can perhaps speculate that maybe the stockings were lying around Constancio's house and that maybe these were owned by a woman he had a relationship with. Now, back to the autopsy report. The autopsy also revealed that it looked like there were at least two indications of blunt force trauma to Claudine's head. The results also indicated that Claudine was heavily assaulted, maybe even tortured before or after she was raped, but before she was strangled to death. The many bruises on her body surely supported this theory. Now, earlier I mentioned that the police who first went to the creek did not immediately see clear signs of injury such as a knife or gunshot wound, but the autopsy would ultimately reveal that apart from the strangulation marks, the bruises, the blunt force trauma indications, and sexual assault signs, Claudine had in fact also been shot at least once in her right arm. Now, remember that witness who saw Betty's group dump Claudine's body into the creek? Well, what I had not told you yet about this witness was he actually recognized both Constancio and Betty in the group. Now, this witness in particular will not surface until much, much later in the court proceedings, and it was a shame that he was not able to come forward when it was really needed during the investigations. But, lucky for the NBI, they still had a break coming their way. An informant of then Paranaque Mayor Joey Marquez called into his office to say that he knows two of the five men who killed and raped Claudine, and that the men had told him about what they had done to her. The informant told the mayor about the locations of the two men. The NBI immediately acted upon this information. And this really brings us to that day of the arrest of Berry and his cousin Nieves Constancio that I have already mentioned earlier. When both were arrested, the police were also lucky to subsequently locate and arrest Donardo Pacalinawan. However, their luck ran out when it came to the other suspects called Burog and Dani Darden. 
but the pursuit for justice could not wait, so the court proceedings had to be initiated. These were initiated with or without the other suspects. After all, the public needed to see this case resolved, and Claudine's family was waiting for justice to be served. Now, in the midst of preparing the case, but I'm not exactly sure when, Berry suddenly recanted his statement. The reason for this remains unclear up to this very day, but one Paranaque police officer speculated that Berry's move to retract his statement was motivated by his desire to become a state witness, which will guarantee him immunity from prosecution. Now, I could not find any source that confirmed whether Berry's plan had actually worked out. In fact, it was very frustrating to not find any court documents from the trial at all. But what we do know is that only three of the five suspects were in the end tried. The police could not find and arrest the men called Burog and Danny Daten. Nieves Constancio and Ernesto Berry were tried, convicted of rape and murder, and sentenced to life in prison. The court also ordered both men to pay actual and moral damages worth 245,000 pesos. Meanwhile, Donardo Pacalinawan, who indeed was arrested later on, was acquitted as the judge did not think the prosecution was able to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. Of the crime, Judge De Leon of the Paranaque Trial Court said the following, and I quote, it appears that the acts of the accused clearly indicate a joint purpose, a unity of action, and the concurrence of sentiments. It cannot be denied that all the accused conspired and confederated with one another. Thus, conspiracy has been sufficiently established by the prosecution. End of quote. During the trial, a few surprising things of interest came out. As a 16-year-old, Nieves Constancio was sent to Boys Town, a juvenile prison, after he was convicted for the murder of then-President Corazon Aquino's former Interior Secretary, Jaime Ferrer. This was in 1987. In 2001, he was then suspected of murdering a mother and a son in the infamous Calupig Massacre. Now, this may seem naive on my part, but... If there had been a good, solid database of former convicts or ex-felons, small or large criminals, it would have been easier to track down Constancio as a possible suspect in all the phone snatching that was happening in the area. Maybe this is a big thing to ask, but I keep thinking of scenarios about how Claudine's death could have been prevented if our criminal justice system operated a little bit more efficiently and effectively. Now, the trial started and ended in 2002, but both Berry and Constancio appealed the trial court's decision as expected in most criminal cases. By 2012, the Court of Appeals made it clear that they are upholding the trial court's decision. The convictions, the trial, and the sentences, and even the actual and moral damages that were to be paid to Claudine's family were all affirmed by the appellate court. The court also gave weight to the witnesses who identified Constancio and Berry as the ones who dumped Claudine's body into the creek. 
Both Berry and Constancio remain in prison, and although this was a win for the family in some small way, like in all murder cases, it will never get them their daughter back. Claudine was a 21-year-old lady, a LaSalle graduate who had a whole future ahead of her. Her life was taken away so senselessly. She was at the wrong place at the wrong time. When I tell these stories of women being murdered, I often think about how the world can be a truly dangerous place for women, especially. I am recording this episode a few days after a British woman called Sarah Everard, who was just walking home from a friend's place, was grabbed and murdered, allegedly by a police officer. Women are told over and over again to modify their behavior, to not do X, Y, Z, to be safe, to wear these clothes instead of those, to never make eye contact with men when walking home alone, to have keys between their knuckles. And yet women, despite all the precautions, despite all the modifications, still get raped and killed. And women, unsurprisingly, get victim-blamed. Here is a novel idea. Teach men to control themselves, to not kill us women, to leave us be when we are walking, to not feel entitled to our attention or to our bodies. It may help shift the dynamics. It could save lives. It could have saved Sarah, and it could have saved Claudine, for sure. And with these thoughts, I want to end this episode. I know that I may have started a much broader discussion there, but that is a discussion for maybe another day. For now, I want to thank you for listening to this episode and for always supporting this podcast. And now to my podcast recommendation of the week. My podcast recommendation of the week is Banana Q, a Filipino-flavored podcast. This podcast is hosted by Ray and Dee. Both were born and raised in the Philippines and then moved to Singapore, where they became colleagues before moving on to Japan and Hong Kong. They have been overseas Filipino workers for over a decade. Here is their trailer. Hi, my name is Ray. And I am Dee. Welcome, Welcome to, to Banana, Banana Q, Q Podcast. Podcast. We've been living abroad as overseas Filipino workers for more than a decade, and we're here to talk about anything relevant to the Filipino people. Even if you're not Filipino, but are interested in our culture, quirks, and everything in between, this podcast is for you too. We will answer burning questions the fun Filipino way. Why does our Christmas start in September? How did Lapu-Lapu kill Magellan? Or did he? Is our 30s better than our 20s? Why do we love Jollibee so much? Which came first, the duck or the balut? Did your parents make you kneel on salt too? Are aswangs real? All these questions and more only here in Banana Q, your Filipino-flavored podcast. Again, thank you so much for listening to this episode and for always supporting this podcast. It truly means the world to me. If you want to support this podcast even more, make sure that you follow Lagim on Apple Podcasts. Leave it a five-star rating and a comment. You can also become a patron on patreon.com for as little as three pounds or four dollars per month. You could get early access to episodes and bonus episodes as well.
I will soon be releasing exclusive content on Patreon about true crime stories involving Filipinos abroad, so it's definitely worth checking out patreon.com. I'm not quite sure when I will be launching these uh, Filipinos abroad episodes, but make sure that you follow Lagim on Instagram so that you will get updates about this. Thank you again for listening. Maraming salamat at mabuhay. With everyone looking to shrink their bill these days, Dunn Stores gives you new ways to save on your shop with double savers. First, you'll save in the aisles when you fill your basket with fantastic low prices across thousands of great products. Then, you'll save again at the till with our 5 off 25 grocery voucher. Shrink your bill with Double Savers, new from Dunn Stores. Dunn Stores, always better value. Terms and conditions apply. Voucher can be used on next in-store grocery shop of €25 or more. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.